Amen. There's a story of a boy uh, who grew up in the church. You could say he had a drug problem. His parents drug him to church on Sunday morning. His parents drug him to church on Sunday night. His parents drug him to church on Wednesday night, to potlucks, to anything going on in the church. This boy was there. To the revivals, yes, revivals that would happen, the week-long revivals where the gospel was preached. This boy had heard the gospel every week multiple times a week up until the point he was eight years old. And then when he was eight years old, he went with his dad and some men from the church and some other boys on a camping trip. And that camping trip was intentional. It was intentional to have some fun with some of the boys in the church, but it was also intentional to to make the gospel really clear to us boys that went. And a number of this boy's friends made a profession of faith, and this boy did too. And then the next day, he met with the pastor. He met with the pastor, and the pastor asked him some questions about faith. Asked him some questions about the gospel. So he understood clearly the gospel of Christ. And then the next day, he was baptized, because that's the way that boy's church did it. And that persuasion of church. Let me ask you a question about that story. Based on the information that I just gave you, do you believe that that boy was, as we say, saved? Do you believe that his understanding of the gospel was real? And perhaps you would say, yes. If he truly understood the gospel, then he is saved. That that is saving faith. But some of you might say this, I'm not quite sure. You would answer a different way. You would answer in a way that said, well, I don't have enough information. You haven't given me enough information to know the answer to that. Does his parents believe that there is a heart of repentance that they've witnessed? What does the rest of his life look like? Is there any evidence to convict him of the faith that he claims? Many of you would be in that second camp. Maybe even as a parent, you wonder that about your own kids who have professed faith in Christ. And if you're in that second camp, I don't think anybody would say to you, hey, you're wrong because you're believing in a salvation that comes by works. I don't think anybody would say that. What you're saying is, if you hold that position, is just want to see if this bears out in this child's life. And that's where James is going today. He's going to help us understand, understand the relationship between faith and works and how that whole thing works. And he's going to do it in an unashamed way. It's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable even if you look at this passage and you say, are you really saying this, James? Let me ask you a question. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? What good is your faith? Is there evidence to convict you of the crime of being a Christian because you claim him? And maybe most importantly, as people who profess faith in Christ, is there a way that I can reasonably know that my claimed faith is credible? I'd want to know an answer to that. Perhaps you've thought about that as you've thought about the faith that you claim. James helps us evaluate two different types of faith. A fake faith and a real faith. Go with me to James chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 14 through 26 this morning. This is really the central text of the book. The central idea of the book, that faith works. 
chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. Let me read it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Anybody getting uncomfortable yet? Verse 18. But someone will say, this is hypothetical, you have faith and I have works. And James says this, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from your works is useless? And then he gives examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Ouch. Justified by works. You should underline that. What does that mean? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures were fulfilled that says, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified. Watch out. Here it is. By works and not by faith alone. Verse 25, and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We got a problem here, and I want to address the big problem, actually the potential problem in your mind as you come to this text. And James is saying, and he starts slowly, then he builds up, but he's saying, faith You're justified by works? James, what are you saying? So let's deal with that elephant in the text, and then we will go and look at fake faith versus real faith. Cool? So, this is a major textual challenge that we have to answer in James. Because, look at the phrases in verse 14. What good is your faith without works? Faith without works, verse 17, look at it. Without works is dead. Verse 24 is the clincher, though. If you were curious or you were a little bit on edge, he just lays it out there in verse 24. You are justified not by, you are justified by works and not by faith alone. If you know your Bible, maybe you're thinking right now about Paul and all the things Paul says about faith alone, particularly in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Romans 3, 28, Paul specifically says that you are justified by faith alone. That seems to be a contradiction. It would seem that James and Paul are fighting here. Which one is true? The gospel hinges on that answer. It's important stuff. So I'm going to try to surgically walk through this without cutting the wrong vein. If I cut the wrong vein, we've got some problems and you walk out. Rightfully so. But here is what the idea of justification means. It's not a contradiction. The idea to be justified has two senses to it, and it's used in two different ways in the Scripture. The first is the way that Paul often uses it. Paul often uses the word justified to mean this, and here's the key word, to be declared right before God. To be declared right before God. It's a legal term of standing. So if you're in the courtroom and you're guilty and God is the judge, he acquits you of your guilt because of Christ. That's the kind of justification 
that Paul is talking about in Romans. And the reason he's doing that in Romans is because he's dealing with legalism in the gospel. He's dealing with people saying, no, we've come to faith in Christ, but we have to add circumcision. We have to add works. We have to add the law. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're declared right. You're made right by an act of God that he declares you right by faith and repentance. Salvation is by faith alone. And that is true. But James uses this term in a completely different way. He's not talking about being declared right before God. He's talking about being faith being demonstrated to one another. Here's his context. His context is a people going through trial and tribulation and exercising what he deems to be a superficial faith. Easy believism. Have you ever heard that term? We just claim to know something and believe something and your life doesn't look anything like it. That's what he's saying when he's saying justified by works. A couple other things I would tell you. So it's not a contradiction. They're just using that term in different ways. If that makes you uncomfortable, there's some other really important words in the scripture. The word saved or um, the word saved in the New Testament and the word delivered in the Old Testament has a past tense to it. Kind of like your faith, you look back on your faith, it has a present tense to it, and it has a future tense to it, and it's used in different ways in the scripture. So I'm giving you evidence that words are used in different ways in the Old Testament and New, and they're important words, they're words that we use. The word justified is a really important word as it relates to the gospel, as is the word salvation. And so there's more evidence for you. And if that's not enough, let me give you a couple more things. I'm just breaking out the fire hose here, but listen. Remember back what we said the first week we got into James? Do you remember what happened at the Jerusalem Council? James was the moderator of the Jerusalem Council. Remember, he's the first pastor of the world in Jerusalem. And Paul and Peter come to him and they're saying, hey, the Jews are saying that you've got to add works to the gospel for it to be effective. James is a moderator. Peter and Paul say, here's the deal. Here's what people are saying. What are we going to do with that? And at the end of a lot of discussion, James says, we're done here. Man is justified by faith alone. Leave these people alone. Leave the Gentiles alone. Don't make them get circumcised. Don't make them follow the law. So James is a proponent from the beginning. He and Paul are friends. He's a proponent of this. If you go back to chapter 1 in James, 1, 17 and 18. Who's the good giver of good gifts? The Father above who gives what? He makes you to be born again, is what the text says, by the word of truth, by the gospel. So James has already affirmed that. In this text, do you see the example of Abraham being credited righteousness? James is affirming faith alone. You are saved by faith alone. Have I beat that one down yet? Are we good? I need you to know that as you come to this text. It's the biggest question you ought to have in this text. But the way James uses the idea of being justified is a demonstration of faith, a vindication of faith. Show me, he says, I will show you by my works. He's not challenging being saved by faith alone. Good? But I want to show you really the heart of what James wants you to know right here and wants his audience to know. I want to show you the nature of fake faith, okay? Fake faith. What are fake, what is faith, man, I need a different word. Fake faith's characteristics. What does it look like? Verse 14 through 17. Look at verse 14 there. 
He says, what good is it if someone says, so this is a hypothetical situation, if someone says, perhaps someone is disagreeing with him as the pastor of his church. That never happens, right? Maybe somebody is disagreeing with him. We don't know, but it's a hypothetical situation. That's the first thing. And he does this multiple times in this passage. And you see it there. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can, what's the next word? That. Can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of faith? So here's what's happening in this whole text. What's happening in this whole text is there's not two ways to salvation. There are two kinds of faith that Paul wants you to know about. One is not real. One is fake. One is hypothetical. It's not real. It's not real faith. And the other one is real faith. It's true faith. It's saving faith in action. What it looks like. Root and fruit. So here's what he's doing. Fake faith is all talk and no action. That's your first idea today. Fake faith is all talk and no action. Look at it. If someone says he has faith, he doesn't have works, can that faith, a fake faith, save him? Here's the example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Here's a translation. Present day. In your community group. At your church. Right here. There's somebody in your community group that doesn't have daily provision. Not like I don't have food for next week or next month. I don't have enough food for today. And I barely have any clothes to wear. If you go to that person's house and say, hey, I'm going to come over. Or actually, you tell that person, hey, come over to the house. What's that person thinking? Hey, they're, they're going to give me some food. Maybe they'll give me some clothes. And you sit down with that person. And you say, break open your Bible. We're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. Let me teach you. Let, let's have a Bible study about how God provides for you. And let's pray together. And at the end of the Bible study, we pray and we ask God to give you what you need. Is that faith doing anything? You know what you need to do? You need to have that person over. You need to open your fridge. You need to get out the bread and the lettuce and the meat and the cheese and the chips and the fruit. You need to give them something to eat. That's real faith in action. That's what he's saying. What he's saying, these, this fake faith is just, just giving them pretenses. You're just, you're just well-wishing. Saying, hey, brother, I'll pray for you. That's not faith in action. That's a fake faith. That's all talk and no action. And James says this kind of faith is dead. It's useless. It's not real. It's fake. Does that sound harsh to you? Maybe that sounds a little harsh to you. Let me show you what Jesus says. <laughs> Similar situation. Matthew chapter 25, I think we have it. Matthew 25, verses 41 through 45. Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. He's talking about separating the sheep from the goats. And he puts one on the right and one on the left. And he says to the one on the right, Hey, you fed me, you clothed me, enter heaven. And then he comes to the one on the left, the goats, and this is what he says. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed man, into the eternal and prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry 
and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. I was in sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did you... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not min- we didn't minister to you. Then he answered them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You think James is harsh. Jesus is way more harsh. And he's talking not about being saved by faith alone, he's talking about the evidence of your faith lived out and demonstrated. Jesus is not affirming here any more than James that you're declared right by your works. So I want to clarify this really importantly too. You're not saved by those acts of mercy. Those are not the things that saves you, but those are the things that give evidence to you that you are saved, that you do know Christ. Does that make sense? There's a guy that um, I remember coming to camp as a counselor, and this was the guy that everybody looked up to. He was like the Bible answer guy. And he was a, he was a really good leader. He's a really good teacher um, of kids different sports that we had at camp. And he knew the Bible inside and out. And everybody kind of looked up to him for that. He was the guy you would go to if you had the Bible question. But man, this guy, there was something about him. It was just cold. It was just really cold. He wouldn't help anyone. There wasn't a tangible nature to his faith that demonstrated good works at all, that demonstrated a love and a care for people at all. And I just always wondered about that. Like, man, he knows so much. He's a great leader. He's a great teacher. People look up to him for that. But there was something really missing. And look, I don't know for sure if he knows the Lord or not. But 20 years later, that guy's completely wrecked his life and his marriage. That guy gave away rights to his own kid. And he could give you biblical reasons for it. See, fake faith is all talk, no action. When I was a kid growing up in the church I grew up in, we had this little song, kids. If you're happy and you know it, say amen. If you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands and three things. If you're happy and you know it, we changed that in our church. If you're saved and you know it, we are real spiritual. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. If you're saved and you know it, Stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And there's a line in there in that song that says this. If you're saved and you know it, your life will surely show it. Does your life surely show it, or is it just a song that you sing? Is the cross just an accessory you wear? Is your faith just a bullet point on your resume or a tool you use for your business? Kids, is it just community service hours for your school? Is there any cling to your claimed faith? That's hard. But that's what James is saying. Fake faith is all talk and no action. 
that there's something else about fake faith. Look at verse 18 through 20 there. The second thing, and I'll put it in the positive, real faith is more than just head knowledge or an emotional response or an emotional experience. This is really important. Hypothetical situation number two. Look at it. Verse 18. Someone will say, this is the second one, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There's the demonstration, right? But look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. You believe that God is one is directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. James's audience is mostly Jewish Christians. This is called the Shema in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And it says, listen, the Lord your God is one. Listen, any Jew could affirm that. Any Jew, not just Christian, any Jew could affirm that statement. That's what James is saying. And he's being sarcastic, effectively. He's being sarcastic. You believe that God is one. Wow, you do really well. All Jews believe that. That's what he's saying. Now look at the example that he gives. Even the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. Demons believe the same data. Christ, God, cross, judgment. And they're persuaded by it. They're persuaded, if you see, if you look at Jesus and his life, and the encounter that Jesus has with demons, or demons have with Jesus, is probably a better way to say it. What do they do? They know who he is. They believe the data. They're persuaded even to believe the data of who he is and what he did and what he will do in the end with them. There is an intellectual awareness that demons have. There is an intellectual assent or persuasion that demons have to believe Christ and what he did and who he is. Does that save? <laughs> That's his point. Not only are they persuaded, there is an emotional response because of what they believe about Jesus. They shudder. I remember as a kid listening to the pastor going, I don't want that. I don't want hell. I'm scared of hell. I want heaven. I want bluebell. I don't want asparagus. Right? There's an emotional response that even demons have. Look, there are levels of faith, if I can say it that way. There are levels of belief. Intellectual data, you have to have. You have to have faith in something. Right? Unless you live in today's world, and in today's world, it's like, hey, whatever you believe doesn't matter. You didn't believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere. But belief has data. Christ, God, faith, grace, sin. And then that data has to go to a next step of intellectual assent to it, a persuasion to it. You believe that Jesus was a historical man who died on a cross, that he was God, he died on a cross to save you from your sins. You believe that data. Congratulations, you have the faith, according to James, of a demon at that point. That's the level of faith you have. There's a third component to faith. There's a third component to belief. What is it? It's personal trust. It's personal trust. The church, in church history, 
They refer to this in the Latin as fiducia. Fiduciary commitment. You know where you have a trustee, has all the money, and you have a benefactor, you're trusting in the trustee. That's what faith is. It's a fiduciary commitment to put all your faith and your trust in the lap of Jesus and believe in him. Because he is the basis of faith. Trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That's what it is. Kids, you need to listen to that. It's important, parents, for you to teach your kids the truth of the gospel over and over and over again, like the boy in the story. And if they've professed faith, baptism, all those things are great, and those things are important. But, but there's a difference between head knowledge and emotional response and personal trust. And that's the final, most important step. It's especially important in cultural, the cultural air we breathe of Christianity in a Bible belt. Like the little boy in the story, there's a profession of faith, there's an emotional experience, there's a baptism, there's a confirmation, there's a sprinkling. Some of those things are healthy to look back on and go, yeah, I think I believed. But what James is saying is this, the best evidence that you have that you're a Christian, that you have truly been saved by faith alone, is that there's fruit in your life. That's the best evidence that you have. So maybe this morning, C3, we need to reflect on the claimed faith that we have. The Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That This can be a good thing. Was the, is there an awareness of the data, an intellectual persuasion? But then is there personal trust? When you think about your faith and you wonder about your faith, is there personal trust that's evidenced in your life by works? You know, this is a dangerous thing to preach. Because one of Satan's greatest tools is to convince the not yet believer that they are saved by something. Because they're holding on to something. And the second tool, for the, and the other tool is for the believer to convince them that they're not. To convince them that they should doubt. And I've been praying against that this week as, as I knew I was going to talk about this. Because even the works that you perform are by God's grace and through His Spirit working in you. You're not just pulling up the bootstraps and doing that, right? So real faith is more than head knowledge or an emotional response. It's a personal trust. If you look back at this text, James keeps saying a phrase three times in these three verses. Show me. Show me. Show me. There's an old movie. Eh, older movie, not old movie. An older movie, Jerry Maguire, one of the best lines in any movie that you could ever have. There's Tom Cruise, who is Jerry Maguire, and he's a sports agent, and he decides that he's going to go um, off the beaten path, he's not just going to stay with the agency, that um, he wants to be a better agent, so he creates his own company, and then you've got Cuba Gooding Jr., and he's the first client that he has, and he's this hotshot new receiver, comes out into the league, he's an emotional guy, and at some point in the conversation and in the movie, Cuba Gooding Jr. is wondering, does, does Jerry, Tom Cruise, does he really, is he really bought in to being my agent? Is he really going to work for me? Is he really going to do everything he has? So he's looking for evidence. He's looking for evidence. And so you see the scene, Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr., he's on the phone with Jerry. Jerry's in his office, got all of his staff around him. And he says, hey, I'm talking to this other agent. And this is Jerry, one of Jerry's only clients. He's like, I just, I just need to know, I just need to know <laughs> that you're with me. So here's what I'm going to do. I want you to say something. 
I want you to say, show me the money. And Tom Cruise says, show you the money. He's like, no, 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 no. Show me the money, Jerry. Show me the money. And so he, in his quiet self, says, show me the money. He's like, no, 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 no. I want to feel you say this, Jerry. I want to believe you. I want to feel it. Show me the money. And so Jerry McGuire stands up in his room around his staff, and he screams, show me the money. Cuba Gooding Jr., he did want some money. He wanted his agent to get him some money. But his point was, I want to believe in you. Show me. I want to feel it. I want to hear it. Listen, the best evidence, the proof of your faith is not a profession or even a baptism. Those are good. A confirmation class, a sprinkling. How many crosses you have in your house? How many Bibles? James is saying to his congregation, show me. Stop it with just telling me. Stop it with saying it and there's no action. Stop it with just head knowledge and emotional experience that you had. Show me. I'm not going to do that to y'all <laughs> this morning. But that's what he's saying to his church. Show me. Show me your real faith by your works. Fake faith talks a good game. Fake faith has head knowledge and emotional high. And this claim, but this claimed faith, that kind of faith counts for nothing, according to James. It's useless. It's dead. It's actually deceptive. Here's what real faith looks like. Real faith is rooted, here's your third idea, real faith is rooted in the gospel and produces good works. It's rooted in the gospel and it produces good works. That's James's thesis. Faith works. Two examples that he's going to give. He gives the example in the text there, if you look at it, of Abraham and Rahab. I want you to think about the story of Abraham. Abraham trusts God. God promises him land, seed, and blessing. And in Genesis 15, Abraham has a little problem. He's saying, hey, I know you said, God, that you're going to give me land, seed, and blessing, but I don't have any kids. We don't have any kids yet. And we're past the point of having kids. She's barren. We can't have kids. So, so what's up? And God takes him outside. And he shows him the stars. And he says to him, you will have descendants more than the stars in the sky. And then the Bible says, and Abraham believed in God and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. You know what that is? That's justification by faith alone. At that point, if you want to say it this way, Abraham was saved in Genesis 15. This is what you see in this text. He doesn't mention it first. James mentions it second. But if you look at the passage there in verse 23, that happens in Genesis 15. When does Isaac show up? When does the story of Isaac and sacrificing Isaac show up? So almost 30 years later in Genesis 22. So Abraham has already believed, and 30 years later, we come to the passage in Genesis 22. And God shows up again, and what does Abraham do? He says, here I am. Here I am, God. What do you need? Hey, uh, I, take, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that I gave you, the son that you love, and I want you to go slay him as a burnt offering. And I don't know what happens between verse 2 and verse 3. I kind of want to know. 
In chapter 22, verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took his son. And he told his servants, We're going to the mountain to worship, and we will return. I think Abraham believed, even if God does have me do this in this test, that he will raise him up. And so they go to the mountain. Imagine being a son going, all right, we're, that's what Isaac says. What did he say? Uh, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? What does Abraham say? God will provide. God will provide a sacrifice. I don't know if that was just to get him up the mountain. I don't know. God will provide a sacrifice. He's believing God, even in that. Puts him on the altar. Hands about to come down. God says, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. Says it again. Here I am, Lord. Because when I tested you, you did not withhold even your son, your only son. Think about the gospel implication here. And you fear me. There will be what? What is the angel? What happens next? They find the ram. The, uh, coincidentally, the ram is moving around in the thicket. And Abraham names the place God provides. And then what happens? We forget what happens after that. What happens after that is the angel shows up and says, I'm going to bless you. What God said before about all the blessing that's going to come through seed, it's going to happen. I want you to think about the progression of that long story that I just gave you. Saving faith, credited righteousness, right? Testing. Testing faith through works. Blessing. That's the pattern. That's the pattern in your life. That's the pattern in my life. That's what James is getting at. Real faith is rooted in the gospel and produces good works. Same deal with Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. And somehow she knows about the God of the Hebrews and she calls the God of the Hebrews Lord. And the spies come and to great risk to herself, she keeps the spies at her place and hides them from the Canaanites. And what do they do? They say, when we come back and God takes down this city, bring your family into your house and they will be protected and you will be blessed. Rahab's in the line of Christ, y'all. In the line of Christ. This is a Canaanite prostitute. What do you see? You see faith, saving faith. And you say real faith, evidence, great risk. She's in the Hall of Fame of Faith in, Roman, in Hebrews 11. An act. Her family wasn't just saved in Jericho. Her and her family, because she was saved some time back, it was because of, she was justified in that sense because of her works, just like Abraham and his faith. And then blessing. That's the pattern that you see in this text. That's the pattern that you see in Scripture. What are you created for? What does the Bible say you're created for? Why were you made? Why are you saved? Why did God save you? And the pat answer is right, to bring him glory. That's the right answer. But how do we bring him glory? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 puts these two things together. Look at it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. So you see grace through the river of faith. And it's not as a result of works, 
So faith alone saves you, justifies you before God so that no one can boast because that's exactly what we would do. If I contributed to my eternal salvation, I'd be going, man, I'm better than you. I've done more than you. That's not how it works. But look at verse 10. For, what does the word for in Bible study methods tell you? Here's the reason. For we are his workmanship. We're not saved by our good works, but we are his workmanship. That's the idea of potter or clay. He's created us. Created in Christ Jesus. So you've come to faith in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The way we bring God the most glory is by walking in good works because of what Christ has done. The basis, the means is by faith, but the evidence is good works, which brings him glory and also is a witness to your world. So, real faith is rooted in the gospel and it produces good works. There's a quote that says this, real faith is like calories. Wait for it. You can't see them, but you can see the results. Real faith produces results to the glory of God, but there's a warning here, isn't there? There's a warning here. Here's what we tend to do with this. We tend to start looking at people and going, mm, I'm a pretty good fruit inspector. <laughs> I'm a really good fruit inspector. Let me tell you something. Sin is so deep, you're not that good of a fruit inspector, and neither am I. We can see, like Jesus said, Jesus said, hey, you'll know them by their fruit. There's either fruit or there's not, and in a general sense, that's right. But sometimes we get tripped up as Christians to go, I got more fruit than them. But think about the nature of sin. Think about external sins, whether it's um, gluttony or alcoholism. You can see all those sins very apparently. Anger, those are, those are external sins that come out. But what about the sin of pornography? What about pride? You might think somebody's really humble when yet they're really prideful. We're not the best fruit inspectors, so be careful as you evaluate fruit. In other people's lives, we should be careful because the grace of God still needs to be at work in our lives as well. We don't produce those good works. It's still out of the work of the Spirit in our lives through His grace that there is work that God allows us to do. But that's why we're created. Remember that boy that I told you about at the beginning? That boy spent from age 8 to age 20. 12 years, that boy, me, from age 8 to age 20, claiming faith when all he had was a head knowledge. All he had was an emotional experience. And when it was convenient, when the plane was taking off on the golf trip, going, all right, <laughs> if I die, what do I have? Those moments, that was fake faith, y'all. And at age 20, God turned the lights on, and things changed, I think, to a degree. There was evidence of faith. People could say, you know, that guy before was like this, and he's a little bit more like this now. He's a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more loving, a little bit more forgiving. He thinks about others and not just himself. So, your takeaway 
today is this. You were saved, y'all. You were saved by faith alone. I can't say that too much and scream it from the rooftops. You were saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. I want to leave you with this story, or a parable actually, entitled Duckland. It was written by Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, theologian. Duckland goes like this. Kids, listen to this. It was Sunday morning. All the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews, where they comfortably squatted. When all were well settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to the pulpit, opened up the duck Bible, and read, Ducks, you have wings. And with wings, you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. You can use your wings. So use them. It was a marvelous, elevating duck scripture. And all the ducks quacked their assent with a hearty amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled home. C3. Let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving faith that is personal trust put in you that you might use us to bring you glory. Lord, I pray as we evaluate our own faith today, I pray that we would do that. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your grace even in the midst of evaluation, even in the midst of saying, do I have a real faith or is it fake? If I believed a lie, Lord, I pray for your grace. I pray for those who do know you here, that they would be encouraged by what they see in their life, not because it's perfect, not because it's anywhere near perfect, but there's evidence that they know Christ by the life that they live, that there's fruit behind the root. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it penetrates our heart. We thank you that Christ has died on a cross for our sins, that he is the basis of our faith, not our works, that there's nothing that we can do to earn your favor, but we simply trust in Christ and what he's done by faith. And Lord, Produce in us what we can't do in and of ourselves. Produce good works in us. Help us be a people who are quick to offer forgiveness to others. Give us a people that are pricked by your spirit to confess our sin when it happens. And let that be evidence to us that there is a changed life and a changed heart. Lord, help us to open the refrigerator and give people what they need to care for the needs of others, not because those acts save, but it's evidence of our faith. And not only evidence of our faith, but it shines a light of the gospel to a lost and broken world. Lord, we love you and thank you for time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.